Thank you, Professor Jones, and uh, what a joy to be here with all of you here tonight. And uh, I want to say what a privilege it is to get to work with colleagues like uh, Professor Jones, Professor Walker, and uh, what an exhilarating stewardship to be able to welcome professors like Dr. Shatro and Professor Burns uh, here to the campus. We're very thankful both of you taking time out of busy schedules to be here. And I'm thankful that you've taken the time uh, in a very busy academic semester uh, to think about some of the most basic questions in apologetics and our, our calling as Christians seeking to be faithful in the 21st century. I appreciate the reference to the fact that I have recently celebrated 30 years in this office. I was speaking in this room to a group of 14 and 15 year olds just a matter of a few months ago. And someone introduced saying that I just finished 30 years and you know, I, I, I looked at them and I said, do you wanna know what 30 years looks like? And they're 14, 15 years old. They, obviously don't know what 30 years looks like, says, let me make it clear to you. Look at that painting and look at this face and you, you see 30 years. And I was amazed at how many of them just looked at me and went. <laughs> uh, to my disappointment, the point was uh, very well made, but nonetheless, you have to understand how happy it makes me at this stage in my life, to look out and see all of you here and know why you are here and who you are and uh, the promise that you are to the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and the seriousness with which you take this task. And so I'm thankful to Dr. Jones for putting together this excellent conference and uh, it is my joy kind of to get things started. And my word is going to be a bit personal uh, as well as programmatic. So someone asked me, uh, you know, what, what what are you writing now? And uh, you know, in, in the world in which we live, you, you, the book that people buy is the book that you have written and finished about 18 months before anyone has it in hand. And it is really interesting, the way that the whole publishing cycle and everything works, uh, I've already turned in the next one and, and working on another one. And that's just the way this works because of publishing schedules. and. One of the things I'm working toward is what I would call the larger project of the promise and peril of Christian apologetics. Just want to give you a bit of autobiography here. I was a teenager in the 1970s when the world was in absolute tumult. Now, clearly, we're experiencing radically uh, radical social change that is matched by a social velocity that hasn't happened before. But things really did begin to speed up in the 1970s. It was a whiplash from the 1960s. And I, I tell people the difference between the 1960s and the 1970s is that the campus radicals of the 1960s were on the tenure track in the 1970s. And so when people talk about things like critical theory, you know, I, I was in a, uh, a, a history and philosophy program in a secular university as a teenager, and I was confronted with two Marcusians who had just graduated from European universities and been hired in the University of Florida system. Um, and, and I mean, Florida was growing so fast they were hiring people. And it, it, it swept up a couple of Frankfurt School uh, professors. And my first thought, by the way, was this will not fly. I mean, because I mean, they were just pretty uncut Frankfurt School critical theorists. And my first thought was, this, this will not fly because there is no hook in the culture that this is going to connect to. 
I mean, you may remember that part of the whole Frankfurt School argument was that uh, the Marxist revolution did not come by economic means because people in the West did not feel themselves to be economically oppressed. Uh, they, they saw themselves as gaining by means of uh, what in one way or another might be described as capitalism, certainly a, a more free market model, rather than losing. And even if they wanted a better job and they wanted better pay, they did not want the state to take over their factory. They, they just didn't buy into that class consciousness. So I thought this can't work. But I also understood at the same time what a, a deep antagonism, to use a Cornelius Van Til term there, what a deep antagonism separated this Frankfurt School cultural Marxism from Christianity. <clears throat> I was wrong when I said it couldn't work, it wouldn't gain traction. It didn't for a long time. I was right for a long time. But being right for a long time is not being right, okay? Um, looking in retrospect, I think that I was right that this would not work. It couldn't gain traction in this culture until something else happened. And what I didn't know was that something else was identity politics. Uh, and, and because the moment you have identity politics, now, 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 you and, and, and the, the theory, even before it was called intersectionality, that is now intersectionality, all of a sudden now people can pile up different identity credits. And, uh, and, and, and so this works, this works, because uh, it's not just worker versus capitalist. It's, uh, it's actually all these different groups separated by mutual antagonisms, uh, the competing for power and social equity and political status. So all that to say, I, I didn't come here to talk about the Frankfurt School. All that to say, I, I really also understood that something else was going on here. One Catholic theorist described it simply by saying that modernity is one great project in sexual liberation. It's, it's rationalized sexual misbehavior. So uh, all of this is going on. There's something deeper that's going on, and that deeper thing is sex. And, uh, and, and that is not a stupid argument. It's a profoundly uh, self-evident argument in one way. It's just that as a, an evangelical Christian, I thought, yeah, but something's got to be under that. Something... The radical antagonism can't just be between, say, two competing sexual moralities. Eventually, it has to do with whether or not there is a God. And, and, and whether or not it's true that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and whether or not it's true that we are human beings who are creatures made by God in his own image. When I talk about the promise and peril of Christian apologetics, I just want to say that a lot of theological mischief has been done in the name of apologetics. And I, I think maybe a part of what I need to do with you tonight is simply to tell you that apologetics is a more controversial and, and frankly more complicated word than you think. I, at least I think you think. We'll test that. So in the 20th century, the theological liberals, Protestant liberals, argued that it was they who were doing apologetics, that it was, it was the liberal argument supplanting biblical Christianity, uh, it, it just completely excluding the virgin birth, the supernatural, eventually miracles, biblical inspiration, all the rest. They were doing the apologetics because they were providing an apology, an apologia, an argument for the cultural and intellectual relevance of Christianity in the modern age. So it was Paul Tillich 
in the 20th century who actually described his theological method as apologetics. It was an apologetic theology. And of course, what it was was replacing Christian theology with something completely different. And by the way, without going into detail, if you know the story of Paul Tillich, sex was never far from the theological project. But, but nonetheless, it was, it was replacing Christianity with something that was completely different, and he called that apologetic theology. In the British theological system, apologetic theology was, was also very dangerous because there it was tied to dialectical theology. And so in, in the British tradition, you had uh, apologists who said, look, here's, here's the way it works. The world asks the questions and Christianity provides the answer. The, the task of the church is to provide answers for the questions the society is asking. Now, let me just say, that's not stupid. That's not incoherent. But that is not an adequate definition of either the church's theological task uh, or of apologetics. The, the, the scripture interrogates us. We're not just merely asking questions. The scripture answers. The creator is interrogating us. Who told you you were naked? You know, our task as theologians is not just to wait for people to ask questions and then try to come up with some distinctively Christian answer. It is the proclamation of Christian truth. So all that to say, when I was a teenager trying to understand the world intellectually, trying to understand Christianity and the gospel intellectually, trying to understand the grand superstructure of the Christian faith, right down to individual Christian doctrines and how things cohered. Um, apologetics was a mixed blessing. But it was a blessing. Because the other side, the promise, is, uh, is also an essential part of the church's calling, and, and that is to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in us uh, with reasonableness and, 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 and spiritual worship, with fear, with respect. And uh, so I want to welcome you to this conference, and I want to affirm its importance. I want to speak of the peril and the promise in the sense of we're leaning into the promise and trying to avoid the peril. We're, we're not defining apologetics as a way to make Christianity rational to an irrational world or a world that has given itself to irrationality. We're talking about the proclamation of the Christian faith. We're talking about the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with intellectual substance and full conviction and arguments. As the Apostle Paul, we seek to be persuasive without apology, but we're not giving ourselves to apologetics as just a way of trying to make Christianity makes sense to the modern world. All right. So here I was, a Christian teenager, asking giant questions, trying to find theological and intellectual substance. And so I, I irritated lots of people asking questions. I irritated just about every adult I could get a hold of asking questions. I gravitated to adults who were interested in talking about these things. And thankfully, the Lord brought into my life some wonderfully faithful people who were actually encouraged by a teenager asking these questions. Sometimes in their encouragement, they spoke more than I could possibly understand. But that is another aspect of apologetics that I often refer to as the apologetics of encouragement, which is sometimes over answering a question. Because 
that left me in the position of wanting to understand the answer. I wanted to understand what was just argued. I want, I want to understand that I do not walk away from this understanding, by my estimation, half of what this conversation was just about. But I am hungry to get the other half and to figure that out. So what did I lack? I lacked historical context. I lacked an intellectual framework. And I lacked a biblical theology. Uh, there are probably undoubtedly other things I lacked. But, uh, but I, I, and I didn't know I lacked those things. I didn't have the equipment. To, by, by the very fact I lacked them, I lacked them so utterly, I didn't know that I lacked them. But I, I had an instinct to know I'm, I'm looking for historical context. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking for historical context. I feel like there's a great conversation. I have, in, in terms of the, even the fragmentary education I had at that point, I, I was able to see, okay, th there are people long dead who were talking about what I'm thinking about and who were making arguments that people are still talking about today. So I leaned into every class on the history of philosophy or every class, frankly, on, on history that, that I could take and, and then I all, I, no one really at that stage of my life is making the distinction between primary and secondary sources. I'm just kind of figuring out that if someone's going to talk to me about this book, rather than reading a book about that book, I would try to get that book. Now, this was a previous era. It was not really easy for me to get access to a lot of these books. It was amazingly difficult for me to get access to a lot of these books. There were bookstores, uh, but they didn't carry many books because of the, the, the difficulty of just maintaining inventory. I went in and asked for things, and I got glazed looks from people. But they would order for me, and back then you filled out a, an order form in what was called IBM paper. That meant you wrote with your ballpoint pen, and you know, but the chemical rubbed off on like carbon paper underneath. This is not, I realize I'm wasting my breath. You don't have any more idea what carbon paper is than anything else. But let me just tell you, you ordered it, and then they had to mail it somewhere. It was weeks, sometimes months, before a book came. And besides that, I was a teenager, didn't have that much money. So it was really people, people who helped me a, a great deal. And... Um, in retrospect, some of them offered arguments based upon, say, the history of thought that were a bit too sweeping and reductionistic. But I am not criticizing them at this point, because at that stage in my life, I needed to know past, present, and future in some coherent sense. And so I just want to tell you, if you feel like you don't have an adequate historical grasp of these things, then search after it, but understand that I hope you die never feeling like you have never feeling like you have a totally adequate understanding of these things. You're never going to read everything. You're never going to understand everything. But the more you can understand to fill in historical context and the flow of history is very important. An intellectual framework. I was desperate to find an intellectual framework. And, and then what I discovered was, was revolutionary. And I didn't discover it as in I was sitting in my bedroom reading the scripture and all of a sudden this came to me. I was not out in the pasture tending the sheep when this came to me. I've never tended a sheep, as a matter of fact. Not a single, not a single lamb. Um, but I was in just a process of intellectual you know, questioning when all of a sudden came to me as kind of a reassurance, something I never thought of before, and that is that Christianity itself is a comprehensive theory of reality. That 
corresponds with truth. It, it, it's a comprehensive truth claim. I, I, it, I didn't have the word, the word worldview, uh, which I tend to use at least five days a week on a daily review of news and events from a Christian worldview. Uh, and, and look, that, 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 that word, it, 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 you know, it can be misused, but you just have to know it's a life word for me. Because when I first heard it from Francis Schaeffer and heard him describe it, I all of a sudden understood this is what I've been looking for. It's, a, it's, an, it's an understanding of the comprehensive truthfulness of Christianity in every dimension of life. An intellectual framework that, that is not independent of other intellectual frameworks. I mean, we, we really know what the Christian worldview is by understanding there are other worldviews, there are other systems of thought, there are other epistemologies, there are other ontologies, there are people who deny ontology. Very different moralities, very different eschatologies. I also said I, I didn't have a biblical theology. I, I want to encourage you, you know, many of the people on this faculty are some of those who have developed uh, biblical theology in this generation in a way that serves the church as the church was not served when I was much younger. And if I do have something to say to you from having been here 30 years, it is that if you were to go back into evangelical circles 30, 40, 50 years ago, you'd be shocked if you went and tried to find a book on biblical manhood and womanhood, you'd be hard-pressed to find it. If you were trying to find an argument grounded in creation order, you'd be hard-pressed to find it. And, and, and yet we, and, and if you're trying to, to understand how to read the scripture, how to understand a, the canon of scripture in terms of biblical theology and apply it to, to, the, to the, the other theological functions, you'd be hard-pressed to find it. But now we speak quite naturally of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. You know, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And it makes perfect sense to us. And not only that, we come to understand that we didn't come up with this in many ways. That's Calvin's Institutes. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the church fathers taught us to read that way, but I didn't know that. But the, the recovery of biblical theology has been another tremendous assist and I think uh, kind of a part of the prolegomena to the development of apologetics as I think we now fruitfully and faithfully think of it. I mentioned history, so I didn't have access. I didn't have a clue. I, di I didn't know what books to read by dead Christians and trying to understand history. So I'm, I mostly read you know, dead pagans or, or dead people who are some mixture of pagan and something. So the one big issue that loomed large, and what's really fascinating is evidently it still looms large, is Rome. I don't know if you saw this, but national media, including the New York Times, dealt recently with a poll that indicated that men, and especially younger men in the United States, think a lot of Rome. <laughs> okay, okay, so... Mary turned to me and said, how often do you think of Rome? <laughs> and I said, I need to think about how often I think about Rome. And you know, I really hadn't thought about that before. And I came back and I said, I think I think about Rome every day. <laughs> and I said, I know what, 
I know what the New York Times is thinking about, and I know what the feminist who wrote the article is thinking about. She's thinking about gladiators and, and, and Roman legions and wars. I said, that's not irrelevant to that, but for one thing, I'm a Christian, and I'm a, I'm a theologian, and I'm a preacher, and so Rome is just massive. You, 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 can't, even, you can't talk about, I mean, it was Roman soldiers who put Jesus on the cross. I mean, Rome's looming large. It was in the year that Caesar Augustus decreed that a census should be taken. I mean, Rome's just always there. And let's face it, Rome's in the apocalypse in a big way. Read Tom Schreiner's latest latest commentary. It's there. I mean, Ro- Ro- Rome is just looming large. I said, so I think a part of it is because I'm a preacher. I think, I think it's just always there. I just never get past it. You know, when I, when I sign books... You know, I, I just put a Bible verse, and I say, and the Bible verse I've written out, at least I make reference to, is uh, is is uh, Romans one sixteen. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first, and also to the to the Greek, to the Gentile. And that's Romans one. So I'm I'm thinking about Romans all the time. I said, but it's it's bigger than that because I said to Mary, I said, you know, I really think. That my understanding, without, without having to just, you know, cognitively, actively, self-consciously think about this, I, th- I said, I, I just, I think about the flow of human history all the time, and Rome was so much of that flow, I, I don't think I can ever get past Rome. And I said, and besides that, I said, i got to be really honest. The great historical question that I tried to deal with first in my life, my intellectual development, was Rome. So I hate to agree with a feminist in the New York Times, but I think we do actually think a lot about Rome. <laughs> yeah. And the gladiators and the legions are not uninteresting. <laughs> All right. So the first great classic giant work I decided to read was The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. If you are wondering how to remember the year that it was first published, just remember 1776. Uh, it was a big year. <laughs> but you know, Edward Gibbon, he wrote this, and so I have no idea what the argument he's gonna make. I have no idea whatsoever. I, I'm just trying to go figure out, you know, what is this great, what is the meaning of history? And, and for some reason, it seemed like the first thing that would come to mind, the first question is, what do you do with Rome? So. I put myself through the experience as a 17-year-old of reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, all the volumes. Yeah, yeah, right. It also explained how I fell asleep uh, some nights. But you know, I did get his argument. I got his argument. And by the way, Gibbon's an, an, an amazingly good writer. So he, he, can make, he can make more things interesting that I would have thought at 17 he could make interesting. And, and, and frankly, he's talking about a lot of things I don't have enough data, I don't have enough dots on the map to connect all these things, but actually he's putting a lot on the map and, and he, he's making his own argument. But I came to understand that the argument he's making is that, Christ, that, that the Roman Empire fell because it got soft. That it was strong when it was driven by pagan martial virtues for which an elite was given permission to have excess. And, and it was weakened by Christians who relativized the empire and flattened its eschatological claims 
replacing them with Christian proclamation. And, uh, and lessened, as Gibbon said, the bonds that had secured the destiny of Rome's citizens and Rome. Okay, so I didn't have a whole lot of argument against Edward Gibbon, and I certainly didn't have the knowledge that he had. So I'm still asking these big questions. What what came after that was college, university study, history, political science, philosophy, theology, an introduction to the Christian intellectual tradition, apologetics, patristics, theological method, historical theology. Uh, All these things awakened a hunger to have more of that more biblical theology, more historical theology, uh, more patristics, more apologetics. And, and there, too, was a moment of transition because, you know, in a curriculum, those things are presented as classes, as courses, as discrete areas in the curriculum. But the longer I, I studied, the deeper I, I, I studied these things, the more I realized those are just labels we're putting on different dimensions of answering the great big comprehensive questions. Rightly understood, theology and philosophy and political science or history, they're, they're asking, if, 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 they're, if they're asking the right questions, they're basically very much the same questions, but they're offering a different understanding of how to answer those questions. So I was looking for people. I, I collected people. I still collect people. I know, people come to my study, people that I invite, not the people I collect. <laughs> well, the people I invite that come to my study and, and my library, and, and, you know, it's like a giant demonstration of what Freud would call the id, unrestrained. You know, everything that interests me simply by walking in my study. There, there are oil paintings on the wall. There are busts and statues and, and they're the people I find fascinating. And, uh, and as the people sometimes ask me, why does that painting hang there and this painting hang in the other place? And I say, I want you to look at the room and recognize that painting fit there and this painting fit here. <laughs> but this does mean that when the lights go out, the Apostle Mark has a conversation with the Duke of Wellington observed by Theodore Roosevelt and concluded by Winston Churchill with Luther and Katie watching from the back of the room. And you just look at that and you go, okay, so there, there it is. Just, I've, I've collected people, I've collected thinkers, I've collected authors, I've collected thoughts. One of the people that is uh, central to that collection in my mind is Augustine Bishop of Hippo. Now, I read a lot about Augustine that, that really didn't seduce me. Uh, it, was, it was in a book of the history of philosophy or the development of the Western mind, and, and obviously Augustine's a major figure. It was, as a seminary student, a Master of Divinity student, I was, I was basically seduced into a lifelong interest in Augustine, because for the first time, 
I began to understand Augustine in his own chronology, in his own pastoral setting, with the urgencies that he faced. And I came to understand that even as Gibbon was talking about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, here you're talking about who was Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. As the Roman Empire is clearly facing its greatest challenge. And what in the historical mind would be described as its decline and fall. And here was Augustine who, who was fighting theological fights. And, and so I'm fascinated. I, I, I honestly believe that one of the most important ways to teach historical theology is to trace the debates. And uh, so I, I just got invited to speak at a conference in Istanbul on the day, 1,700 years after the Council of Nicaea was, the, the, the Nicene Creed was adopted. And I thought, okay, I got, I've, got to do, I've got to do that. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, how could I say no to that? You know, now, I also know that given the variations in the calendar, especially complicated when you're in a place like what had been Constantinople, and, and, or even right, if you are in Nicaea, I mean, we could be a few days off. Long explanation for why we'd be a few days. In fact, I, I know we're going to be a few days off. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going I'm to make sure everyone I know knows that I was speaking at Nicaea on 1,700 years the, to the day after the creed was adopted. I think teaching the arguments really is a big way that helps. So, so you, you, you find where heresy encounters orthodoxy, and the church has to discern the difference. And, and, and that, that, that's where you have to understand that it's dangerous to say that heresy precedes orthodoxy, because after all, the truth precedes error in terms of, of the reality of God's economy. But the articulation of orthodoxy often does follow the articulation of heresy, because the church says that's not the Christian faith. And so I think it's helpful to go to those places intellectually and then as a teacher with students, you can just you can fight these fights and understand it. Well, Augustine was in one lifetime involved in so many of those absolutely necessary defenses of Christian truth. And, and I, I remember thinking, you know, it, it, is, it is for Augustine, it's not just a question of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But it is the church that Jesus Christ established against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. And that distinction, that, that, that distinction turns out to be absolutely crucial. Um, in the bookstore this afternoon, I mentioned that a lot of my interest in Augustine, and I, I'm not embarrassed to tell you this, it came by reading a really good biography of Augustine, and that was Peter Brown's biography. And I, I, I think much like other major figures that have had a great influence in my life, my, my interest in them didn't start with the biography, but it was, the biography was an accelerant. The, the biography was a catalyst. And, and it made me want to, under, it, first of all, I, I began to understand how Augustine moved through time. Uh, his adolescent rebellion, his, uh, I mean, this guy obsesses about stealing a pear uh, as, a, as a very young boy. Uh, he's interrogating his heart and, and, and he's moving through time. You know, he, he was a pagan. 
when he writes, and, and when he confronts the Manichees, he had been one. Um, when he stands against the Pelagians, when he defends the Trinity. But that, then I began to understand, no, it's not just that, he's a pastor. And, and, and let me tell you how that matters. As I, I look at his instruction for new believers. I look at his preaching. Looking at his preaching, you discover things such as that when you begin and you fast forward to, say, the city of God, you need to recognize that 30 years earlier, Augustine's already talking about the two cities. He's already talking about the two cities, one earthly and one heavenly, even though he's not using quite that language. He's writing about that when he's teaching Genesis, decades before he would write the city of God. So, and by the way, he did it, this also in, the, uh, in his work on teaching in uh, which he said in, in the year 400, again, there are two cities, one ungodly, one holy. And this has been true, he said, from the beginning of the human race. There are, there are two cities that are marked by two wills. Now, what's interesting is that, and I'm fast-forwarding here for the sake of time, uh, in the city of God, he will say, each of these two cities is marked by distinctive love. Uh, earlier, decades earlier, he said each was marked by distinctive will. And... Uh, as he said, they're, they're separated by their wills. And then Augustine adds that they will later be separated by bodies according to the judgment of God. Again, the, literary, the literal commentary on Genesis, uh, roughly the year 411. Then you fast forward to the city of God. Okay, so I'm living, born in 1959, you can do the math. Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States. That, that's a weird time to be born in the flow of American history because it is when America is not certain if it's more secure than ever before or more insecure than ever before. It's a, it, you look back and you can say, and of course it was in the middle of the Cold War, um, and, and so Dwight Eisenhower is president, John F. Kennedy would become president you know, shortly thereafter. The two arguments were that the United States is now this hyperpower, and given nuclear weapons, the defeat of Nazi Germany, the defeat of Imperial Japan, and, and frankly, the decline of Europe, partly because of the, uh, the economic costs of the war, and you could say two world wars, the United States was kind of astride colossus, uh, you know, and, 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 and the only rival was the, the uh, atheistic communist regime in the Soviet Union, the rival blocs, as they were called, of influence at the time. But the United States felt actually very secure in that sense, very secure for a nation that in fairly recent times defined itself in isolation from virtually all the other nations of the world. It now defines itself as kind of the leading power for democracy and freedom and liberty and human dignity in the world. And felt very secure in that, but at the same time very insecure because globally it is unclear whether history is moving in our direction or away from us. I mean, the argument can be made that the Soviet Union appeared to be winning the argument well into the 1970s, and not by the end of the 1970s, but well into the 1970s, it appeared that Soviet communism may well be the coming thing, and uh, democratic self-government the going thing. But you, you look at this and you understand, okay, this is, this is an interesting time to try to figure these things out. 
obviously people were looking at uh, any kind of analogy. You know, what, what, what else can we look at here? What, 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 what historical... What historical background is there to this? And, and I tell people, you know, all you have to do to understand America's self-consciousness in these things is, is uh, compare going to London to going to Washington, D.C. And I've taken people to both recently. And what I point out is, is that in London, you know, there's a, a, there are traces of the Roman Empire, to be sure, but forget that for a moment because they're just traces. You have to be taken to them and shown through glass on the floor the remains of a Roman wall. Uh, but but most of the uh, m most of what people go to see in uh, in London, for example, is uh, and I, and this is this is a sweeping statement, but it's going to be medieval. It's going to be that what, what, what people go to see is medieval civilization. That's and, and frankly, that's what draws me to London. But you go to Washington, you know what you don't find? You don't find anything medieval. You find classic. You know, you, you don't find George Washington, you know, portrayed in a suit of armor. You find him in a Roman toga. And, and, and it was Washington himself who instructed Pierre L'Enfant, the architect, to design the new capital city. It was to be a new Rome, which was, you think of how pretentious that was in the late 18th century? But you look at the architecture, and it, it cries out Greece and Rome. It cries out Parthenon and Pantheon. It doesn't cry out Westminster Abbey. Chartres. So all that to say, I'm fascinated with how all these things, how these things combine. And it's really clear to me, it was very clear to me as a young man, that there are two cities. And, and you come to understand, here, here's a basic Augustinian realization. And I put it that way because Augustine didn't come up with the idea of the two cities. It's in scripture, Jerusalem, Babylon. It, it, it's, it's in scripture, the children of light and the children of darkness. It, it's, it's in scripture in time, this present age and the age to come. And, and so to be a Christian is to understand there is a heavenly city and there is an earthly city. And God is the creator of both and he is the Lord of both. But they are two different cities and they have two different destinies. And Augustine helps us comprehensively to understand they are separated by two different wills. And indeed, they are animated by two different loves. And I just want you to know that if I describe myself theologically and apologetically, I'm going to say that after I say Christian, and you have to say some other necessary things like evangelical and Baptist and Protestant, but the most important thing I can say to people who would understand what I mean is that I'm Augustinian. I think I am. As I know myself self-consciously, the framework of my thinking is deeply confessionally Augustinian. I don't argue with Augustine on everything, obviously. And, and it was mentioned in the bookstore this afternoon that, you know, if you want to understand the city of God, you just pick up the book, The City of God, you're going to have to read an awful lot of stuff you're going to consider extremely strange. But you're going to get the pattern. What Augustine did, I think comprehensively, was to ground Christianity in, a, in, in his age in such a way that he combined the strength of what had come in the patristic era from the fathers and, and distilled it and then made it yet more comprehensive and, and shows us how to do so in real time and in real space as the Bishop of Hippo with a pastoral responsibility and, and with, with live pagans you know, confronting him and others and with, with heresies new and by that time already old 
and with intellectual seductions as well as the seductions of the flesh everywhere around him in ways, by the way, his confessions make clear he did fully understand. I just found in Augustine a groundedness. And, and, and look, I'm a Calvinist. I, 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 I am reformed. And, but, but where does that come from? You know, well, it's a stream of thought that Calvin and the Calvinists well understood was deeply rooted in Augustine. Now, now, again, they're not going to ground the authority in Augustine. The authorities in Scripture. In fact, the authorities in Scripture alone. But it is made manifest in the history of the church by the providence of God. The very Christ who said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His lordship over the church is seen as, as we see in retrospect, in a great tradition of orthodoxy, of Bible, of theology, of doctrine, of philosophy, of history. And the reason I would use the word Augustinian is because I do not believe anyone has exceeded Augustine in the history of the Christian church in a personal influence for good for the church on these matters. Well, that was supposed to be my introduction. So I'm simply going to leave out all the content and tell you what my 10 points are going to be. <laughs> this is going to have to be another time. I'm going to suggest that our Christian apologetic should be first, empowered by our theology, second, compelled by the love of God, third, translated into love of neighbor, fourth, facilitated through the proclamation of truth, fifth, it is to be buttressed by reason and intellect, sixth, it is be aimed at the heart. Seventh, it is grounded in scripture. Eighth, it is expounded in a comprehensive Christianity and its truth claims. Nine, it is to be evidenced by a holy life. And 10, it is to be offered to the glory of God. There. You can fill in the paragraphs for yourself until we have a next conversation about these matters. Let me tell you, I, I, I love finding things that surprise me. And I'm ending with this. I, I found something that surprised me just a few days ago, and I, it seemed very relevant to what we're talking about here, even tonight. It is not a statement by Augustine, but a statement by Jerome, contemporary, in a rough sense, for sure. He said this, he said, after the most radiant light of all the nations had been extinguished, so this is after Rome, fallen. After the most radiant light of all the nations had been extinguished, after the head of the Roman Empire had been cut off, and in one city the entire world perished, I fell silent and was humiliated and unable to speak of goodness. If Rome can perish, what can be safe? Not a foolish question. I just end by reminding us that Augustine, thankfully, doesn't just ask the question, he offers the answer. If Rome has fallen, what can be safe? And his answer is everything. Safe in Christ to the glory of God, in the city of God, for the people of God, for eternity. I do think that's a pressing question. I think it presses on us every day. I think the answer is even more pressing. And I'm thankful that it was articulated in space and time and history by someone who is now 
accessible still to us and worthy of our consideration in a conference on Christian apologetics. And I'd like to think that Augustine would find that looking at a crowd like this somewhat perplexing, but very satisfying. Thank you tonight for your attention. God bless you all.